0: And MP3 downloads. And now with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you, everyone, and I trust that you have had a blessed holidays celebrating the incarnation, the birth of the Lord Jesus, and ready to enter a new year in the blessing of God. And I want to begin. Um, our webinars for this new year with Mark in chapter 4. Mark's Gospel in chapter 4. And reading from verse 35, um, yeah, verse 35. On that day... It had been, let me say, if we read all the accounts of this particular day, it's a day that we have um, quite a bit of information about as to what happened before this event and also what happened afterward. And it had been a, shall I say, a busy day. That's putting it mildly. Um, People coming, going, healings taking place, persons who must be led to Jesus, and both Jesus and the disciples are pretty much exhausted. And so in verse 35, And on that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was, in the boat. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, "'Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing?' And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? Or other versions say, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Other versions say, where is your faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Of course, I'm sure that most of you have read that story, heard that story. Some have heard it since Sunday school. But I want, this story has fascinated me. It draws me back to itself again and again because there are questions there, questions that they, the disciples, asked, questions that Jesus asked, which of course are far more important. But then I come along with my own questions it's not an easy story to know really what's going on. It's not like some other stories in the Gospels. And, and so, there, there it is. I can't go any further. They they get into the boat. And, of course, these disciples, I hope you realize, were from around the Lake Galilee. They came from, uh, they are concentrated on a place called Capernaum, just... A suburb was Bethsaida, and that's where James and John, along with their father Zebedee, they had a fishing business. It was in that area that Peter and Andrew, they had their fishing business. These were fishermen. They were used to that lake. They'd been raised on the lake. They knew its mood. They could read its anger, its rage, its peacefulness. They they knew this lake. And the others came from cities around there, and so they might not have been fishermen, but they were completely immersed in fishing mentality, shall I say. They, they, the lake, the lake what was part of their life, almost part of their family. Everything depended on the mood of the lake. And on this occasion, Jesus had said after this hectic day, He said, let us go to the other side. Let's get away from here. Let's have some R&R. And so off they set, across the Lake Galilee. And then comes the storm. The words that are used there in the original language suggest sort of the mother of storms. It it, it suggests almost uh, something tornadic, it's certainly, this is something I want you to realize these hardened fishermen were not ready for. They they were not afraid of storms. They They'd weathered the storms. They'd ridden the waves. They know how to, but this time, this time, the waves are so high. They're crashing over the side of the boat and the waters around their ankles and rising. The sails are being ripped. To shatters and and, and what, what's next as the boat is, is reeling under the anger and rage of the wind and they were terrified. and when I say hardened fisher folk of the Galilee are terrified, I can only imagine what kind of storm this was. they, they cower before its fury, you see. Their their language is reduced to whimpering. They don't know what to do. And at the same time, there's anger. Because, can you believe it? This, to me, is the center of the miracle words that we're reading. Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. Now, uh, we read that too quickly. Jesus was asleep when this is going on? and not even in a cabin down below, but on deck, sleeping on one of the cushions there. Asleep. Yeah, I mean, I can't really take that in. And before you go running off on some other theory, remember that Jesus, we can only understand him in the Gospels as he is man, human. If if I say this is God in thin disguise, well, it misses the point. How can that help me? If if this is just God pretending to be a man, well, it doesn't help me much, does it? Because I'm a real man. The only way the Gospels make sense, the only way the cross and resurrection make sense is that God became one of us and became one of us completely so facing every one of our temptations, troubles, all that which lashes against us to cause anxiety. He became one of us. In order, from within our humanity, he would reveal to us what human was always meant to be. Please understand that. It's pointless going on unless you get that. We're dealing here with a genuine human being, God who has laid aside his limitless power in order to become as one of us and be filled with the Holy Spirit and operate as mankind was always intended to operate. Hear that. And here they are, these hardened fishermen, whimpering and cowering before the fury of the storm and and Jesus is asleep and they cannot comprehend that and at this point nor can I and they're angry with him I mean, (laughs) what what is anger? well, one, one definition of anger would be unmet expectation If I expect something, and that expectation comes to nothing, then I'm angry. Well, that certainly fits this. They would expect Jesus to do something. I don't think they really knew what, but... If nothing else, get up and help us bail the water out of the boat. If nothing else, come and be worrying with us. But asleep, theres I feel let down. He's not bothering. He doesn't care. He's, he's asleep. I, I don't think they stopped to, to think about the miracle that they were looking at. This is a great miracle of the story that he was asleep in the middle of this kind of storm. No, they, they feel abandoned. He, he's hes left us. He doesn't care. He's off there sleeping while the rest of the boat is about to fall apart. They, they feel resentful. You know... You know, the feeling, it's anger, but it's resentment. What, who does he think he is just laying there sleeping while we are frantically trying to save the whole ship? He doesn't care when we need him the most. That's their feeling. They, they, they express that in, in when they wake him uh, as the time goes on and things get worse and they their first words out of their mouths. Don't you care? Don't you care? You you, you know what's behind this. Please, I want you to relate to this, because these men were real men, as well as Jesus being true men as well. You know the, the thing, if God loves us. Of course, the moment we say if, we're already in quicksand. But but uh, this is this is the way the flesh mind goes. If God loves us, you said God loves us. Well, it certainly doesn't look like it. You see, Jesus, although they had not yet figured out who he was, but there's enough going on between these men, the disciples, and Jesus, that they they are on the verge of saying that he is the very embodiment of God's love and presence with them. Well, if that's the case, if indeed God in this man, Jesus, is, is with us, then why did he allow the storm? Oh, Lord, how many times have we been there? Why? You see, there's no answer to the question why, because you'd need the mind of God to answer it. So we begin by saying, if God loves us, and as I say, you're already sinking right there, if, if God loves us, then, then why does he allow this storm? Uh, what, 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 why, why did didn't he stop this? He's here sleeping. You but why didn't he stop it before it got this bad? Why did he do something? Anyway, he was the one that suggested we started out on this journey. Remember that Jesus told them, "Get in the boat. We're going to the other side." He started this, and now he's sleeping when we need him the most. This was all his idea, but he's not bothering to be with us in the working out of it. And anyway, come on, we have just finished an horrendous day of ministry. We've been assisting him, and it's been horrendous. There's no other word for it. We're all exhausted. (sighs) We're tired out. We need the R&R that he was suggesting we were going to across the other side. We've given of ourselves to everybody that came. We don't need this now, like you'd need it any time. But you know how we talk. You know how we talk. Doesn't he know all of that? Doesn't he know that we're exhausted? And yet he's left us. He he doesn't bother. He's left us to handle the storm when we were at our weakest point. And anyway, I mean, we're only disciples. We don't know that much. But we do know that we are covenant people. God made covenant with us. We're his special people disaster is for sinners, not us. We're sinners outside of the covenant. We are covenant people. We're protected. We're And hey, we're not just covenant people. We are the ones that are the disciples of this one who apparently is the fulfillment of everything the old covenant said. I mean, come on, we are special, aren't we? We're special. We're on the growing edge of God's purposes among men. Huh. Well, I, I don't get it. If, if that's the case, this should not be. I mean... If if indeed he is Messiah and we of all peoples in the world are the, the few that he's chosen to pour himself into, what on earth is a storm about? It shouldn't be, not to us. We're the people of blessing. You call this being blessed? And if we're all of this, and God, the one who represents him, is asleep, doing nothing, not even helping us to bail out the water. I mean, I I believe all of that that I've just said is behind their angry shaking of Jesus. And saying, don't you care? And of course, I've I've assumed as I I was talking here that we we say the same thing. We do. Um, Left to ourselves, most believers will feel very much at home with these disciples feeling the way they did. Um, It's the same thing. Israel back there in the wilderness when they they've been delivered out of Egypt they've been announced as the people of God and his purpose and here they are they've run out of food in the wilderness uh, and they what's going on if we are so special and God is this covenant we've run out of food and we're running out of water too and all that means death. And so they complain and they begin to say stupid things like how wonderful it was back in slavery and how they wanted to go back and eat prison food. Um, It's the same thing when they faced the promised land that God had promised for nearly 500 years at that point. And now they're there for the taking. And all they can do is say, you didn't tell us it was like this. There's giants in the land and... And begin to complain at God. You see, and this is so important, hear me. We, with our flesh mind, will tend to define God's love in terms of what is happening to us or not happening. Rather than seeing the love of God is constant, is. Did you hear what I said? We look at what is happening and say, what is happening? It is so good. God loves us. And then we look at again and we see things are not nice. And the sky is dark and our boat is... Tossing on the waves, and then we change and say, if God loves. So suddenly it's not that God is love, it's if he might be. Do you see what I mean? We 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 define God in terms of well, this is happening, so he must be like this. This is happening, so he must not be like that, he must be like this. And up and down we go. God is love. And his love is faithful love. His love is constant love. His love is intentional love. His love never ceases. Love. We, human beings, create an idol. And what is an idol? Forget those stone things that people have or wood (coughs) that they carve. Uh, before they got that far the idol existed in their mind and that's where us westerners would join them many times we make an idol out of our thoughts we make an idol that conforms to our logic And our reason. So we worship a God that is logical. That can be explained. And we can draw him out in a diagram. And he's predictable in terms of how he's going to act. It appeals to our reason. And we can sit back in our pontificating voice and say about God... A God we can understand and file away under G. And a God we can manipulate that if we do this, he's got to do that. And he always acts according to our expectations, our limited, puny, little tiny pea brains. We can determine what God is like, and we can determine how he's got to act under every situation. And so when he doesn't, then we judge him. We become the judge of the God we created. That's idolatry. You see, the storm here, and you could substitute anything else that's happening. Our idea is, if God is God, then he's got to get rid of the storm, period. That's it. Well, yes, he he will do that. But do you realize that prayer and miracles such as are needed in a case like this, are not so much dealing with the thing or the stuff that we're asking for or need a miracle for. The whole thing is about relationship. Uh, that again could sum up what's happening here. We, we think I'm going to ask, he's going to give it to me, got it, thank you. It, it's sort of like uh, what, it's sort of putting your 25 cents and out comes the coke. It, it's, it's 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 God, he does stuff, well, get on and do it. We don't understand that, yes, He loves us enough to supply our needs and everything else we're asking for, but before that, right at the heart of all this process of God interacting with us, He has number one agenda, and that is to draw us in every situation of life, to draw us into relationship with Him so that we know Him now as a deep and dearest friend, he he wants to stretch our experience of him. He is not a Coke machine. He's the ultimate person who is love that would draw us, stretch us into knowing God, knowing intimately and personally. He, his. He's out to educate us into his unshakable faithfulness so that we've got another piece of track record that can tell us he will never walk out, he'll never leave us. He wants us to know that, bring us into deeper rest. And in so doing, teach us to be a participant in the family business of the Holy Trinity. That's the goal of God. You see, I know I know so many of you, me included, in early years, taught that, that you know, Jesus came to deal with sin, then off to heaven he went, and he'll meet us there when we die. Oh dear. The church is so sin obsessed. That's what it's all about, they say No it's not. The gospel is the news of love that would draw us into relationship of knowing intimately and personally this God and becoming his presence on the earth. And P.S. He's got to deal with your sin in order to get there, but don't get obsessed with Jesus came to deal with sin. He came to deal with sin, but a million times more to bring us into a knowing of the Father and bring us to such a rest and peace in that love and to become givers of that peace into our world. That's what it's all about. Jesus was asleep on the cushion. To say he slept like a baby actually is not enough because I think... By the time this storm was doing its thing, many babies would be yowling. "Um, how, How could he sleep through this? He could do so because he had a totally different understanding of what is happening. You see, in that moment... The disciples are acting and speaking as if God in heaven is no more. And this one they have come to know and trust is not the person they thought he was. And they are abandoned and they are alone. And God's left his high heaven. That's their world view at that moment. Jesus Number one, let me say, he did and does fully share in the disasters of our life. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And before we would go anywhere else explaining those terms, it means he's in your life, period. Not bits of it, not Sunday bits of it or Wednesday night bits of it he is in you in every minuscule detail of your existence and all of your existence everything that happens to you happens inside of Christ that's Christianity 101 and this Jesus that we're looking at right now he shares fully in the disasters, in the crisis of life, which were crises brought about by the fact it's a fallen world. You see, it isn't that the storm comes rushing down the mountains of Lebanon and as it's about to hit the Galilee, it sees there's Jesus in the boat and he says, whoops, and makes a left turn and goes off over... The desert. Now, do you follow me? Storms don't veer away when they see Jesus. Jesus shares with us totally, totally, totally. And sharing the storms of our life totally, he reveals to us how humankind was created to be in such a moment. He shows us what humankind was always intended to be. He shows us how you and I were supposed to handle the storms of life. Because he is here, having faced our world, and he's overcome the great sin. And now... A man at one with the Father is showing us. This is how you handle a storm. And he's asleep. Ah, I I don't know. Can I I think of life outside of anxiety? Is it possible to live life without worry? Come on. I, I think that's what this is saying. As far as he is concerned... The entire matter, which at this moment is a storm, is in his father's hands. It's in Abba's hands. And Abba has said concerning him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well then, if that's the case, I can sleep in peace. Or, which we we don't know, but I'll throw it out, maybe the Father would have nudged him awake to say, there's something I want you to do. And then leisurely, Jesus would have gotten up from the cushion and still the storm. We don't know that. All we do know, this God-man, Jesus, is in total peace so that as we are introduced to him here, he sleeps. You see, when you're asleep, uh, and I'll use a mother because they're much closer to reality in many ways. When a mother is sleeping and her baby is in the next room, that mother is sleeping, and yet there are whatever we might call them, scientists have probably got a name but there's there's something out here like antenna and let that baby cry or just a little bit of a cry and the mother is instantly awake she's on her way to the baby she is asleep but she heard and said there's trouble Jesus slept and he was aware there was a storm, he had to be but aware that it's all okay it's in father's hands I can sleep on until father says something else why did Jesus say let's go over to the other side because that's what father had indicated, because Jesus said that all that he said and did, he did it in tandem with his father. And anyway, what really isn't part uh, of the story, just enough to say it, that actually when they did land this boat, they are met by a demonized man... And Jesus, cast out of the man, I don't know how many demons, transformed him back into a normal human being who would go out and and tell the whole of his little world what had happened. Oh, there's a lot going on here. Father had said, you go over there and you're going to meet the demonized man who shall be delivered. So as far as Jesus is concerned, what Father said holds. We go through the storm. Father carries us through. But the disciples, terrified, angry, feeling abandoned, resentful, they wake him. And the suggestion is someone getting him and shaking him because it says when he was aroused, that is out of a deep sleep, roused and they say the words don't you care Jesus says nothing gets off of the cushion and stretches I've seen this picture in my own mind you know I've been there in my mind see him standing there in that reeling boat like a bucking bronco at a rodeo He stands there and his hair is streaming in the wind and the rain until in a few seconds he's soaking. He stands there and how it says that he rebuked the wind. Stop it. And then looking at the waves which were high enough to come over the sides of the boat he says, Hush! As if you were speaking to a dog heel and immediately said there was a great calm have you, have you ever heard that as you read it you know the, the howling of the wind the whistling through the broken rigging of the boat and the lashing of the waves hardly hear yourself speak and then suddenly stillness Then the stillness Total calm. It's like a mirror. And there's drip, drip, drip from the torn sails. And the water washes around their ankles. Stillness. Huh. He calmed it. Stood there. Master. Then he turned to them. And they're standing there bug-eyed. They'd been afraid of the storm. Now they're they're afraid of what they're seeing. This doesn't fit any pattern. They've got no, no filing cabinet for this. And he says, why are you afraid? Now, you see, this is... All the questions of God, they fill the Bible. I've always threatened one of these days I'm going to preach on all the questions God asks in the Bible, but I think it would take me until I'm 80 years old. Well, that's not far away, but this is one of them. You know, it begins in the Garden of Edom. Adam, where are you? Well, here's another one. Why are you afraid? Or as Mark, as I read it there, why are you so timid, cowering, frightened? Why? Why are you afraid? Now that's an honest question. Jesus, the embodiment, the incarnation of God's love, tenderness, compassion, he's not mocking these men. He's not sneering at them and saying, you yellow-bellied cowards. No, it's an honest question. It's a question he wants an answer to why why are you afraid what what is it that happened that make you afraid uh, and at that point I, i'm with them i just... the, the question reveals what i've been talking about all the time he was not afraid not Afraid, no anxiety, no worry, to the point of peace that gave rest to his entire body. Why are you afraid? Obviously, at this point in their being with him, he didn't expect them to be afraid. You see, if he did expect them to be afraid, then he's mocking them here. No, Jesus never mocked anybody. It's an honest question. He had lived with them. He had demonstrated to them the life of a human being who lived in God, resting in him. Jesus is... The embodiment of the Psalms. And I won't, I'll say that and leave it because uh, that would take too much time to explain. But the Psalms are the very person of Jesus written in advance. So this is Jesus, Psalm 121. This is Jesus. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From when shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. Do you hear it? He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand, which means he's standing there right beside me, and his shade is my guarantee of his assistance. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out, and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore." Jesus lived that. That wasn't just a text in the Old Testament. Jesus lived it. And he's lived it right there in front of them. The love of the Father that is revealed to us in Jesus is infinitely more than any creature, any menacing human, greater than the weather, greater than natural disasters. And so, as everything is flying around my head, there's no if he loves me. Why? It is you do love me, Father. So what do I do in this situation? See, Psalm 56, and remember again, this is Jesus. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee, in God, whose word I praise In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man or circumstances do to me? For the disciples, if you're looking at a compass, when the storm hits, then their, their magnetic north becomes a storm. That's that's what it's all about. It's seeking our destruction. With Jesus, the storm, even though reported to him as he slept, his magnetic north was the Father. I'm in mean, Father's hands. All is well. All is well. Sleep on. Or that other psalm, what is it, psalm 127, where it says, he gives his beloved sleep. He expected them to rest in his rest. They saw him resting and said he doesn't care. Their appropriate response would be, he is resting, therefore we can rest. For we rest in his rest. We believe in his faith. We're one with him. Therefore, we enjoy his peace along with him. We're one. That is, we don't have an independent life. We're not over. He's he's got his life and he's sleeping. Now we've got ours and we've got to try and believe and try and believe. No. I, I don't know how to believe in a storm like this, but he believes in the Father. He's resting in the Father, so I rest in his rest. That, that's, that's what it said. Does that make sense? I wish I could see your eyes right now. You see, now, we are a million miles ahead of these disciples. Honestly, we are. Because after this, Jesus died and rose out of death, and ascended and carried us with him into heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. That's where you is right now. You are now in Christ. That's your habitat. That's your abiding place in Christ. You are united with him. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's who you are. Ah, so it says that now we walk on this earth even as he walked, we're walking, we're living in tandem together. He said to you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives peace. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He's demonstrating it here. Paul called it the peace of God that passes human comprehension. And then he said, where is your faith? Oh, this word faith. We've talked about it before. Let me simply say now, humankind, you and I, we were created... To live inside the love of God by faith. That is, to lay hold upon that love that is announced to us in Jesus, demonstrated to us in Jesus, brought to us in Jesus, dwells within us by the Holy Spirit of Christ. We were created to live there with an assurance that is beyond contradiction, an assurance of certainty that we are his beloved beyond any challenge or any contradiction. No thought of living for one microsecond outside of that love that is ever under me and around me, behind me, ahead of me, and above me, and holding me. From that love we live, and therein is peace, and therein is rest. You see, the great lie, and again we've talked about it, so I just mention it, but the great lie that you live outside of God's love. In fact, outside of God. Because the lie knows nothing of love. And so God is up, over, somewhere out. Prayer becomes sending up an SOS signal to a God wherever he is. Because the lie says, you're on your own, buddy. You're on your own. It's up to you to handle this situation. And if I've lost that sense, knowing, of living inside the love of God, then I am left with what the Scripture calls flesh, creature flesh, just a creature's mind. Only a highly advanced creature mind, but all it can do is logic and reason, and it comes down to one thing. Boy, I think this is going to become another webinar someday. It comes down to one thing, And that is survival. Hebrews 2.15 says that humankind outside of Christ live their whole life in fear of death. That is another way of saying live their whole life just trying to survive. I've got to have enough. Why? Because if I don't have enough, I'll die. Fear dominates the flesh mind. Terrified of sickness. 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 If you just watch one evening of of TV, the commercials must tell you you live in the sickest, diseased part of the universe. (laughs) Every possible disease and every possible drug and then it's followed up by uh, attorneys who say that other drug that last week was the miracle drug will kill you. We're terrified of sickness terrified, why, because I'll die, see, it's survival, I'm going to survive, afraid of people, afraid of organizations and companies, why, because they'll sue me for everything and they'll kill me and, hmm. afraid of loss, afraid of no job, afraid of, because if I don't get money I'll die. Survival. I've got to survive. That's the meaning of life. Or as Jesus said, after all these things, the Gentiles seek. And if I fail in any of those areas of survival, then it's guilt, it's shame, it's self-hate. Hide from the eyes of my superior fellows who were successful. I failed in the areas of survival. God becomes the one I call upon. Help me, help me, help me. I've got to survive. Help me do this. Help me do that. Get me this. It's all about survival. We live our life in flight or fight. The faith that we were created with, the faith that rests in the love of God has been hijacked. And we've turned our faith away from the God who is love, and we believed the lie, and we believed that our survival hinges on this or that or the other. We were created to stand in worshiping awe of the God who is love to the point where he takes anxiety totally out of our vocabulary. But now through the lie, we stand in terror, believing in all the powers that will destroy us. Faith, you see, is union with the Holy Trinity. And what the world has is faith that is in union with the lie. And it's a fact, we are drawn into that union by what we believe. You believe the report that comes to us in Jesus of God's love and his salvation. As you believe the Holy Spirit draws you into that, you believe in the lie and you find the terrible powers of darkness suck you into it. That's the way it is, it's the way it is. These men are having a moment of insanity. Having watched Jesus and drawn their faith from him, they now have yielded to, shall I say, their creature, flesh, mind. And they believe in the storm. And they believe its power to destroy them more than the way the Father will look after them. Faith Joined to his faith. See, faith is the gift that comes in Jesus. I trust in Jesus and he is my faith in the Father. That's the way it is. And he's compassion. And so as he... Why why are you afraid? Where's your faith? And I say again, not mocking them but his compassion stilled the storm. Did you hear what I said? It was a small miracle. The miracle of this story is he slept in the storm. That's the miracle. It was his compassion for his whimpering, trembling disciples that he stilled the storm. And he did it almost all, you know, shut up. And then he turned. We've got to talk, you know, guys. We've really got to talk about your faith. Your, your rest in the father that you see in me and of course they never got it not, not at that time because it says that they, they stood in fear filled wonder who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him. Oh, come on, guys, you missed it. You should have said, who is this who sleeps through a storm? That's the miracle. You're all hung up. You forgot he was sleeping in the storm and you said he stilled the storm. Sure, he stilled the storm because you were so upset, but the miracle you should stand in awe and wonder of is he slept in the storm. Well, I I trust you've gained something from this one, one thing I want to add Peter Peter probably the one who was the first to get to Jesus and shake him awake and tell him why do you care we're uh... Peter it wasn't that long after I would say about five years after that give or take Peter, in Acts chapter 12, was arrested for his faith in Jesus. This, of course, is after the ascension, after the giving of the Holy Spirit. After Peter has come to know this gospel and live in this union with the love of God. But now he's been arrested and they're going to execute him. And he's asleep. Yes, you heard me. He did it. Peter, facing execution, locked in handcuffs to soldiers. He's asleep. Oh, thanks be to God. He got it. Passing through the great storm that would, under normal circumstances, assail him. Peter is asleep. And as the church prayed, the angel came. Do you remember the story? Fascinating story. The angel came and, of course, marched right through the jail. And any any guards, and there were plenty of them, but just the, the angel's presence, and they, they ju- just went into a coma or something. They, they didn't know what was going on. It was a, a piece of time that didn't exist for them. And and the angel just opens the locked door of the prison and here's Peter asleep. And the angel says, get up, Peter, we're out of here. And Peter snored. And the angel had to shake Peter and says, get up. I've come to rescue you. And Peter, groggy with sleep, walked past all the gods who stood there, as I say, in a sort of divine coma. And he was free for many years to come. I say, thank God. Peter had entered into the very rest of Jesus that was now being reproduced in him by the Holy Spirit. And he slept on the eve of execution. And the angel had to shake him to wake him up. I think that's a jolly good end to this story. Father, we thank you for the reality of these words. And we simply ask by your Holy Spirit, bring us to this most basic reality of the gospel that your peace that passes all human comprehension shall keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And now the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May his blessing, his favor, his peace, and his joy possess you and flood your life, and spill over to all those around you. This day, this week, and forevermore. So I bless you, and so it is.